Good morning, Milford Bible Church. It, oh, I have to say, and this wasn't planned, but it's been a long time since I'd seen people in these pews in this building. Um, so it's quite an impact, a little bit of awe here for me too. But um, this morning, we're not going to talk about our own mission and our own ministry that we do. That'll happen later in the hour to follow in Sunday school through video. But uh, and Joy and I will both be here for that. But we thank you guys for continuing to support us. Um, you were there at the beginning for us because it was here in this church that we heard the call of God to go and do what we still do now over, well, coming on 23 years now. So uh, uh, time flies, it does. But what I'm going to do today is I'm going to share with you what I believe God has given me to share with you from Isaiah chapter 6. And it's a passage that I tend to keep coming back to because as a missionary, you do have some highs and you have quite a few lows. And all throughout the roller coaster ride that is the missionary experience, frankly, you never want to lose sight of why you know you were called. And that isn't even from the church that sent you. It comes right down to God. And that's what you're going to hear from me this morning. So Isaiah chapter 6, if you're open there, you'll see that we'll bounce around a little bit, but for the most part, we're going to stick completely through Isaiah chapter 1 through 6, and we'll spend most of our time in 6. Today's passage, Isaiah 6, contains one of the most quoted verses in all the Bible for the occasion that draws us together today, a missions conference. We gather this morning to consider what it is to be a missionary and perhaps to learn about the state of missions in the world. Uh, to see the flags marching again was a beautiful thing to see. But this morning, I'm going to focus on the mindset and the motivation of the missionary, the thoughts that drive us forward in our work for him, even in times of difficulty and disappointment. So today, I entitled this message, All Impels the Work. That's actually a quote from a famous poet from the 19th century, Emily Dickinson. Emily Dickinson, a famous American poet, not so well known during the 56 years that she lived and wrote, but more so after her death back in 1886, she was pretty much a loner for her whole life. She was kind of known for not mixing with people. People would come to her, call on her. She would stay in her parlor, stay in her bedroom, and not really receive guests at all, even refusing at one point to attend the wake of her own father when he died. But during that short lifetime of 56 years, she wrote over 1,800 poems. And one letter that contains the quote that is our uh, title for today, in which she explained uh, what kept her going in her writing. I work to drive the awe away, she wrote, but awe impels the work. Now, it's not the same kind of awe I think I'm talking about today, but the idea behind it, sort of the same. Dickinson, her preoccupation was the concept of death. She was very focused on death, and she was awed by the concept of death. It was a main focal point of all of her poetry. Dickinson's own focus on death impelled her to think more 
and write more on that subject. Ironically, Emily's awe of death urged her on in the work of writing about it. She worked to drive the awe away, yet awe impelled her work. What is awe? I went online and I consulted a well-accepted source in psychology and got this from it. Awe is a most powerful emotion, yet it's hard to characterize in a universal way. In a certain psychology text, awe refers to an intense emotional response that people might have when they encounter an object, an event, or a person that they find extraordinary. Things that elicit awe are typically things that are vast in size or vast in significance or both of those. Um, Those of you who know us know that uh, we enjoy the outdoors and we like to travel to some interesting places. And in summer 2019, we had the opportunity to go and see a spot that I'd only ever seen in photos and Frankly, I was pretty impressed by the photos of Horseshoe Bend. Horseshoe Bend is a spot, more than a spot, an area of the Colorado River just upstream of where the Colorado River ends up cutting the Grand Canyon. So you're near Page, Arizona. And if you've ever seen photos of it, um, it looks like a big horseshoe shape. Uh, in the Colorado River. If you don't know what I mean, look that up because it's a pretty impressive photo. But I always wanted to see that in person. And when we got there, I can't help but say that the sheer size, the beauty, even the power of the river to cut that amazing shape that we saw and the huge size of it um, was just awesome. It was impressive, I got to say. Um, And even so much that as I stood there trying to take photos from as many different angles as I possibly could, no matter how far I walked for the sheer size of it, it didn't look like I was changing my angle very much. But what caught my attention was looking down near the river's edge and even in the river where there were some people who were actually like boating the Colorado at that point or walking alongside and they were so small. You couldn't tell, almost couldn't tell they were human beings. They were little dots that were down there. The incredible size just made that awesome. Another example of all I have to share is a friend of mine, Kathy, who is like really into astronomy. She and her husband like to travel. They like to bring their expensive telescopes with them. They do astrophotography, that sort of thing. And they talked to me one time about a friend that they had met. They were going to Texas, and this friend went to Texas to set up his scope at some kind of big event where everyone would camp out. And if you've been to West Texas, you know that they have high altitude. They have thin air in places, I guess you could say very uh, not humid air, very dry air. And at night, the starry skies are incredible to see, I guess. I haven't experienced that in Texas. But um, he was setting up his scopes like everybody else, this guy was. And the first time he'd ever been there, he's an East Coast person. He's setting up his scopes and we're getting toward nightfall and it's getting dark and all of a sudden as uh, night falls and the stars start to appear, 
he sees the clouds roll in. He had traveled all that way to try to get photos, to try to see the starry sky like he'd never seen it before, and the clouds roll in. So he starts to pack up when a guy who's a more experienced astronomer there says to him, what are you doing? What are you doing with all of your equipment? And he said, well, the clouds are rolling in. We're not going to see anything tonight. And the guy chuckles at him and says to him, my friend, that's not clouds. That's the Milky Way. And he had never seen it before. It's an amazing, amazing thing to see the Milky Way for those of us who live in the northeast with all the light pollution, the not very low horizons, that sort of thing. But uh, Joy and I had a chance years ago to go visit one of the coolest national parks we'd ever been to, Yosemite National Park in uh, eastern California. And when we went there, we went up Glacier Road up to a neat point, but it was dark. It was night when we went up. And we got out of the car, and when I, the minute I got out of the car and I looked up, instantly, there was no need for light adjustment, night adjustment of my eyes or anything. I saw the Milky Way like I'd never seen it before, and I understood this story in the context of that. All I could do was start pulling out... Uh, any equipment I had with us. I had a um, uh, camera all set to go, start to shoot photos, and I didn't have a tripod for it. That didn't matter. I was there, and I was going to capture anything that I could at that moment. Uh, what I did have in equipment was a hoodie. I throw a hoodie on the top of the car. That became my tripod and angled it up and got what for me is still maybe one of the very top few photos I've ever taken in my life, a view that goes toward uh, Sagittarius and the center of the galaxy like I'd never seen it before. Awe at the incredible size of this universe that I was nothing but a tiny speck in this entire thing. You get a sense of the awe, the power of God when you end up looking at that sort of thing. Um, awe is our reaction to things like that that we see. You know, last week, forgive me, Brandon, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, kind of piggyback off something you brought up. You brought up the New York Knicks, and I'm not a basketball fan at all or anything. I mean, I just don't connect with basketball. But while basketball is going on, that other sport that goes on right now is the one that draws me in, hockey. And it and anyone who knows me knows that if it's black and gold, and I don't mean Boston black and gold, that's fake black and gold, the Pittsburgh black and gold, and number 87, Sidney Crosby, and watching what he does uh, over his career is, forgive me for using the word in its loose sense, but is awesome to see. I remember a play that he made against the Montreal Canadiens, and one guy, it didn't matter, he had other penguins beside him. He just took off early in his career and skated around and between every single member of the Montreal Canadiens, all five skaters at once, came into the goalie, deked him out, scored the goal, and people went nuts. People started to scream as loud as they could. They had towels. They were twisting their towels around, going at it like this. People were awed by the physical ability, the, the technical prowess that was Sidney Crosby. And, you know, the thing is, you think about the reactions that we have to things that awe us. I described them already. 
I was taking photos galore to try to remember and try to share this experience with other people. Um, If it's uh, sports, we cheer, scream, root loudly for our favorite team. I wear a Penguins jersey. I wave those towels. I post videos and uh, uh, pictures to Facebook about how wonderful I love my team, right? Um, But over time, the thing is that we sometimes forget. We often forget the details of those but we never forget that impact it has on us, that sense of awe. Today, we're gonna look at a passage from Isaiah, and you're gonna see an awe that goes beyond anything that I've shared with you. I hope you're glad that I said that. We're gonna be going right now to Isaiah chapter one first, because to really get the sense of what's going on in Isaiah chapter six, you need just a little quick popcorn jump around through Isaiah one through five. Let's look at Isaiah chapter one, verses two to four briefly right now. I'll read. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption, they have forsaken the Lord They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and they've turned their backs on him. Judah should have known better. We could say that about ourselves too, can't we? But Judah should have known better and they turned their backs on God. And uh, the nation, God's nation, had forgotten him. I'm sure you can make some applications of that to things that you see. Let's go to verses 10 to 16. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, he says. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked you? Asked this of you, the trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. God's own people are turning their back on him. They're finding their joy in other things. Let's take a look at what he says going forward into chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. See now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food and all supplies of water, the hero and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the soothsayer and elder, the captain of 50, the, rank, uh, the man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman, and clever enchanter. Basically, if I can sum that up, all the key people in a society that make it go, that keep it together, I will take them. I will make boys their officials. Mere children will govern them. 
People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise up against the old, the base against the honorable. As a result of people turning their back on God, God was going to withdraw the blessings that he hadn't put on them, things that they probably didn't even recognize at that point came from God himself. And their society was about to crumble as a result. But, and there's a big but in this thing, go back to chapter 1 again and look at verses 18 and 19. Isaiah 1, 18 and 19. Right in the midst of all the negative stuff we were just reading, here we read these words. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Doesn't sound like someone who's about to like, let go of all the sin and all the people there that they're walking in sin there but come now let us reason together says the Lord though your sins are like scarlet they shall be white as snow though they are red as crimson they shall be like wool if you're willing and obedient you will eat the best from the land but if you resist and rebel you'll be devoured by the sword God is faithful to himself in particular and his word. And when God says he's going to do it, when God makes a promise, God doesn't go back on his promise. Don't miss this. There's nothing that was going on in Judah that surprised God. There's nothing going on this morning that surprises him. And there's nothing that's going to go on later today that's going to surprise him. He knows that all. And when God made promises to his people, he's going to keep those promises. Maybe not the way that they had thought. We're going to flip over and we're going to go to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 2 to 4. God is still faithful, okay? But when we read in chapter 4, verses 2 to 4, we read a passage that your Bibles might have the headline on it the branch of the Lord. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy. Let me read that again. Will be called holy. All who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. God is still in the act of keeping his promises. He speaks. It's a contract. We might not understand how it's going to play itself out, but God has a plan and, you know, he's got this. Um... The thing about this is that the plan is all about this branch. There's a vineyard that most of which is uh, sinking and going the wrong way. But never miss this. There's a branch. There's a remnant. There's something that God is promising is going to remain in his promise. It's going to grow and it's going to become in the end the give birth to the one that uh, uh, the plan comes through. We'll talk more about that uh, soon. But one more time, Isaiah chapter 5, judgment is coming against sin in Judah. That's a promise. 
God says, I will punish sin. You look at this. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? I hope you can hear the love of God in that. I mean, you could almost feel like a parent that's sad for the wayward child when you look at this sort of thing. Um, what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? God is compassionate, but he's passionately compassionate. I mean, he has great cost invested in his compassion for his people. Um, Now I will tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command on the clouds not to rain on it. Let's bring it all together. Isaiah chapter 6. And here we go. As we get to that, I do want to make a connection here before I go on with that. Our society, this is not news to you, has become morally bankrupt. Do you agree with that? Our society has become morally bankrupt and not different than what we read about a moment ago in Isaiah 1 through 5. But, and help, I think it was Brandon who actually quoted and mentioned this morning, salt of the earth, okay? Um, So God has made us to be the salt of the earth. Salt is a preservative. I mean, uh, we were talking about smoking meat before and that sort of thing and using salt, like maybe to take a salmon filet and preserve it so you can eat it and have it last for weeks. Um, Salt is a preservative. And in that same way, we are that preservative when we as children of Christ live honest, good lives led by him, given over to his spirit. We are the salt of the earth. And salt, just like it has the effect with that meat or that salmon to make it, create an environment where it's resistant to spoilage, that's what we can be here at this point as we share the good news of Christ with others. Our sharing and living out of his word helps preserve our society and resist spoilage and brings about the purposes that God has in mind. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 6. It's already been read to you, but obviously here this is a change in power, I guess you will, the king uh, in Judah. And when this happens, Isaiah, someone following God, um, has this chance to see God like he's never seen him before. Like I got to see Horseshoe Bend like I had never seen it before. Like that guy in Texas got to see the sky like he'd never seen it before. Oh, this goes well beyond that. He got to see what he described as um, the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another. And I might shed a tear while I read this. This is a, a, 
Amazing passage here. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Try to put yourself in that position. I don't think I really can, but try to put yourself in that position when you see that. Don't miss this. Isaiah is awed by what he sees. Oh, he may have been you know, trying to follow God and that sort of thing. But God gives him a vision of himself. And that vision, he sees that God is holy. God is different. God is set apart from this world. God is nothing like what we have in this world. You can't say that you really get a full picture of God by just seeing what we've got here because God goes so beyond that. And when he sees that, he is in awe. You know, I have to confess that I am sometimes awed by people. And there was a time back years ago, uh, Joy and I got to go to Washington, D.C. on taxpayer's dime. We got to go down there and I got to meet President Bush. I I was still teaching, of course, then. And I was getting an award uh, for um, math teaching. And uh, those of us from the different states who were getting that award got to meet President Bush as we stood out there on the White House steps waiting for him to come. It seemed like forever while we were waiting for him to show up. And then all of a sudden he walks in. And I remember saying to myself, he's just a man. He's just some guy. He's no different than I am. And then George W. Bush walks out and it's like, I confess, you know, I mean, you're in awe. It's like, actually, I think he looked different to me than, you know, I uh, pictured seeing him. And you realize that you're there with George W. Bush. I mean, it was something that was on. And later on that week, you better believe our country understands the power of awe. Um, they took us to, uh, he wasn't, the president wasn't with us for this part, but we got to have a banquet at the State Department. And I, we got to go to places that only dignitaries from other countries got to see. And we saw paintings on the wall, the unfinished painting of the Treaty of Paris. The actual one was right there. And there was no one even stopping me. If I wanted to go and put my hand on the wall, right on the painting, I could have done it at that point. I wouldn't be standing here now, but I could have done that. Um, And it was pretty awesome. But nothing, nothing like what this had to have been for Isaiah, seeing God in this way. If I was awed by the president and by a building in Washington, how much more would I be awed when I get to see God like that? And that's where we're headed. We're going to get to see, not an image, we're going to get to see the one. And uh, that is awe, folks. But it goes on. God allows him to see that so that he can have this reaction. Look at Isaiah's reaction It wasn't one to pick up a towel and wave it around. It wasn't one to yell God's name out. Look at what he does when he responds in verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When he sees God, he realizes how different God is 
from anything he could ever imagine. And he realizes how sinful he is in the light of a powerful, loving, but holy God. He is garbage. And he realizes that. God lets him see this because Isaiah needs to have his thinking transformed. And folks, we need again and again to have our thinking transformed by the holiness of God as we consider that. Um, it's uh, something that years ago that we had had happen to us. We still had three little kids, Hope, Abby, and Josiah. Okay, they're all grown up now uh, and they're all living in Rochester, New York, all involved in the same church out there. But I'll tell you, um, they are out there and um, back some years ago, we took them to stay with some friends in Arizona and we got to their house and they opened their door and it was like everything in this place is white. And we had little kids Parents, you know my next thing I'm going to say, right? Okay, you know the feeling, admit it. You realize that I don't think I can last here. For the rest of the time that we're there, we're going to be worried that our kid might touch this or touch that, might get dirt on this or dirt on that, and oh my gosh, I can't let that thing happen. Woe is me. (laughs) Okay, you might think to yourself, okay, Um, we can get more comfortable in a world living where there's sin around us, I think, sometimes than when it comes to seeing that kind of purity and holiness, that sort of thing. It was a little after that that we were looking at new carpeting for our house and Joy won't mind me saying that as we were looking at it, the kind of carpeting we were looking at definitely wasn't going to be white. No way. We wanted to get carpet that was darker modeled, carpet that doesn't show the dirt. That's right. And um, so we got that and lived with that carpet for quite a while. But the thing is that, um, you know, that's kind of like people too because we sometimes like to live surrounded by those who don't show the dirt in us too, isn't that right? When you come to God, folks, you, when you see God, you see his holiness and you realize that's not you, okay? Anything good in me is because of what God did for me because God took me and he set me apart, called me apart, called you apart if you're in Christ today. You have any holiness that's imparted to you The fact that you're called holy is all because of his goodness. Amen? Amen. God has Isaiah's mindset fully changed. And you better believe he's got his full attention at this point. And now the shortest call to missions that you could imagine is about to happen. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Uh, that's all. <laughs> um, and what does he say back? Here am I. Send me. Well, that was quick. But he was in the right mental place at that point. He knew 
that he was going to do anything God wanted him to do because he saw God's holiness. Folks, we support missionaries at Milford Bible Church. And the thing about being a missionary is that, you know, there are high moments things that make you shed a tear, they're emotional, things that make you cheer, but there's many, many more times than that that it's hard to stay um, up for things that are going like that. If you don't mind, I'm just going to read something that was shared by a former student of mine. And Angela Clouser, if you're out there watching this, I hope, anyway, I know you don't mind me reading this, but she just posted this up on Facebook and actually a couple days ago, but it was actually yesterday, I guess. Rejoice with me over two of my students whom I believe received Christ as their savior from sin today during Bible class. It's always so hard to tell with children so young, but I heard these little voices repeat the guided prayer I helped them with. To all those who are financial and prayer partners with me, you are part of this too. I praise God for you. When you have a vision of who God is and you're called according to that uh, idea of who God is, you know, you're going to write like Angela did. She wasn't taking any kind of uh, credit for anything that was happening there. In fact, actually, she was sharing her credit with her team, with us who support her, who pray for her, that sort of thing, that you have a hand in this, you have a part in this. Angela was one of the very first team members who came out and worked with us after she made it through math class with me. (laughs) She came and she did that too. She survived and she survived both of those and look at what's happening now. So she's down in Chile doing that. Hi, Angela. I hope you're hearing that. But anyway, the thing is that, um, you know, We need to have our minds changed by God in order to do that sort of thing. And so Isaiah was ready to do anything God wanted. You know, being a missionary can be discouraging work for sure. You follow God and do what he calls you to do, but in most cases you don't see positive results. You know, if we look ahead at what happens with um, what's coming up, God calls Isaiah, and he tells him the message he's going to give, the good news. Here's the good news, folks, that Isaiah was given to give him. Verse 9, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. I don't hear anything in there that sounds like good news. I don't hear anything in there that's going to have people like uh, respond if you make that post on Facebook to your supporters. Praise God. This is what, if it's praise God, it's because he's going to be obedient to what God called him to do. And he says, for how long, O Lord? Maybe there's something better coming. Uh, God's answer, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. Folks, that's the kind of call that God wants you to be ready to be obedient to. Ready to do what God wants you to do. Say what God wants you to say. And yeah, you're going to say it to some people who are close to you here and they're going to put you down. You might lose friendships over it. You won't lose God. But say what it is that God calls you to. You know, 
The big idea here is that God has a plan. And he has a plan that he was putting in place through Isaiah. He has a plan for you today. You are in him today if you have received Jesus Christ as your savior from sin. You've been transformed. You're a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things become new. You're not the same person, the same being that you were. And that isn't just for a nice feeling. And that isn't just for a cheer and a sense of awe. That is something he intends to use to bring out his plan. He is wholly set apart. We need to share the very best this world has to offer. We have sinned. We're nothing without his grace. But he has done all of this for us. God has a plan. You know, we kind of read over this thing, but I didn't make mention of it. A coal was taken from the altar. And that coal was touched to his what body part? His lips. Okay? And when you think about that coal being touched to his lips. I mean, this is worse than pulling out like a burning wood pellet, you know, from your stove, right, Rich? Okay, and touching it to your lips, that would be bad too. I don't think it's the heat that we should be focusing on here. That coal came from the altar, the altar of sacrifice. That coal undoubtedly had the blood of the sacrifice on it. I think there's a foretelling going on here that in order for Isaiah to be counted as holy, he needed the touch of that blood. And it wasn't Isaiah who went and grabbed that coal and did this, folks. God did it for him. Everything that we have good in us this morning, today, and for the rest of our lives is because of what God did for us, not because I'm smart, not because I, I, I work hard or anything like that. It's because God is holy and he's compassionate, passionately compassionate and read, uh, reached out to me and gave me a second chance, gave me new life and a calling to use that for him. Who is the person in your life right now in your sphere of influence that God wants you to be sharing this message with him? The good news is actually not very complicated. It's simple. It's who God is, who we are, what God did, what we do. Actually, follow me along and do this. Trust me. Okay, I'm a teacher, right? Put your fingers up. Just do what I do. Ready? Say this with me. God is holy. We have sinned. God sent Christ. We trust in him. In a nutshell, that's really the gospel, isn't it? The power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes is right there, folks. Okay? Let's, uh, let's pray. God, I pray that if there's somebody here right now that knows that there's somebody in their life that needs to hear that good news, that message. I pray that you impact them with that same vision and that same passion and that same sense of God's holiness and give them the words to say that they can go and share Christ with them, the good news of Christ. Death on the cross, rising again, so just as Christ lives, we can have life with you. 
Father, I pray that you would guide them in that right now. Put those people on our hearts right now. Who do you want us to go and speak to? And one more thing, God, I pray that if there's somebody here that you want to go and change their location or change their current circumstance or change something about, you know, their comfort zone right now and go and do something different for you that you make clear to them. It's not me doing that. It's you. You make clear to them what it is that you want them to do through maybe what's said here or through circumstance that follows. Speak to them and help them to do that. And God, we thank you so much for your love for us, your passionate compassion on us that gives us a chance for life in you. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.